Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 557 with my guest Joe Barksdale. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, how'd you wind up here? What, what life mistake did you commit that you find yourself here in the emotional dungeon uh, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. Uh, that's usually pretty clear, about five, ten seconds in. But I do deal with a lot of uh, issues, and I have done a lot of hard work on myself, and I think I do sometimes have some good, uh, I don't know, perspectives, occasionally suggestions. Let's uh, jump into a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with Joe. This is from Russ, and uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And he asks, when you're dealing with someone with an ongoing problem and you know what the problem stems from, how do you balance honesty about the issue versus respect for the person's feelings? Oh, that is such a great question and such a complicated and difficult topic. Um. I mistakenly, and I think a lot of people, were under the impression for years that an attempt to fix somebody was an act of love. And it's actually an act of kind of emotional insanity because we can't fix people. We can't change people. We can tell them how their actions affect us, how we feel, but uh, it is counterproductive, I have found, and the people who have helped illuminate me uh, that expressing how we experience them is a much healthier way of sharing than cornering them with you always do this or you do that or you need to fix this because they're not going to learn or listen they're just going to get defensive so finding out where you end and somebody else begins is a really really important boundary to to find in your life and learning how to detach with love and compassion 
Um, whether it's a situation or even having a relationship with somebody, it's, uh, it's complicated and difficult. And I find that it takes practice. So great question. I'll thank you for that. Uh, Rosie asks, how do you find a balance between self-care and personal growth? I feel like, uh, my need to manage my mental health through self-care, sick days, part-time work, extra breaks, etc., is eventually going to cost me my career, which is one I've worked extremely hard to gain the qualifications for. I'm often struggling to keep both my mental health and career afloat, and it feels so cruel that despite working so hard, I can't have both. Um, you use the word uh, personal growth. What you described seems to me more like professional growth. I tend to think of personal growth as growing emotionally and deepening relationships with people and letting go of ones that, that, you know, aren't healthy for us. So um, I can answer that question or give my opinion on it, the balance between self-care and professional growth. Um, I think asking people that you work with, maybe your superior, if you feel comfortable asking them, saying, you know, these breaks that I'm taking, do you feel like they're affecting the long-term growth of of my job here or my position or whatever it is that that you want? But in, in my experience, the mental health thing is the umbrella that everything else is under, and it's affected it affects everything else. And so I have to make that my number one concern because if I make my profession my number one concern, then my mental health suffers and then everything else suffers and it will eventually cause my profession to suffer. So I hope that makes sense. But great question. You guys ask. I'm so glad, glad I created the, this uh, Ask Paul Anything survey because I'm getting so many great questions. Butsy. Uh, asks me, I know you participate in many groups. I've recently joined an aftercare support group for my addiction recovery. My problem is there is one very dominant person in the group who it appears to me to belittle people after they speak. I sense this person doesn't like me and my gut is usually right, but I've given him the benefit of the doubt on two occasions now. I've asked how he is and his family. He barely responds to me and never asks how I am in return. This guy's a participant, but he seems to act like a facilitator all the time. He belittled one guy in the last session who was experiencing painful emotions in his life. My response to this person was to acknowledge how difficult things seem for him, and I said I thought he was very brave to attend the group and speak openly despite his anxiety and troubles, and he should be immensely proud of that. Kudos to you, man. That is so helpful. And so that, to me, is the core of what makes a support group great. Uh, I think the words are empathy and compassion for someone who is clearly struggling. The other domineering person's reaction to him was to accuse him of using substances recently, and the manner in which he spoke to him made the guy shut down even more. So my question to you is, have you ever experienced someone like this, and how have you handled this situation? He makes me feel worse after leaving group, and I suspect he has driven people away from the group. I would like to address him in an assertive but not aggressive way, but don't feel I have the courage to do so. Or maybe I do. I might surprise myself. Any words of advice or wisdom would be greatly appreciated. Another 
incredible question. I've been going to support groups weekly, multiple times weekly for 18 years. And of course, I've run across people like this. I'm sure there have been moments when I've been the person that causes somebody else to leave a support group. Um, and I think there are, a ver- I don't think there's any one way that this can be handled. But here's some, here's some ways to consider what to do. Find another support group meeting. Uh, share in a general way when you share about wanting this to feel like a safe space where we don't criticize each other. Um, talk to someone about your feelings or talk to this person about your feelings, you know? I, I feel belittled when you address me. Um, then the ball is in his court to find out what this person's character is. How's he going to respond to that? And you have no control over how he's going to respond, but you do have control over whether you choose to be around that person or not. But, you know, like the, like the earlier question, you can't control this guy and you can't protect other people from him. And the, the sad fact is sometimes there are people who attend support groups who chase unwittingly people out of that support group. I've seen it happen many times, but the overwhelming majority of support group meetings that I have been to are safe and I hate the word, but nurturing and and helpful. And there's a spirit of community and help in the ones that I go to that um, makes a problem like this uh, a very a very rare thing. Um, you know, there are sometimes there are, are a few people in my support groups where, for a period of time, I had to get up and leave the room. Because I just couldn't accept the way they shared. Um, and that's my issue, you know. That is my issue. What I think of them is is none of their business and what they think of me is none of my business. And so sometimes I leave the room. Sometimes I just close my eyes and take a deep breath and see if I can practice acceptance and patience and compassion for two minutes. But... Uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard. But, dude, it sounds like you are being the change that you want to see in the world. And that is fucking beautiful, man. So high five to you. Betty shares an awful moment. She writes, when I was 18, my mom went with me to get my first tattoo. I got it on my upper back because I was going to be a teacher and wanted to keep it hidden. Fast forward a few months after I graduated high school. My friend took me to another tattoo shop and I got a tattoo on my ankle of my cat in the style of one of my favorite children's books. Simple, small, and tasteful. I came home and asked my mom and stepdad, what would you do if I got a tattoo of my cat? My mom said something like, I wouldn't be happy, but it's your life. Well, I showed her the tattoo, and she lost her goddamn mind. She started yelling at me, told me I would never find a job, that I was a disappointment, and to pack up all my things and get out of her house. I've been running away since the age of eight, so I excitedly slash angrily packed up my cat and all my shit in my car. But even though my mom had given me her old car, at the time, it was still in her name, and she threatened to call the police and say I stole it if I left. So my cat and I went back inside and talked to my brother in my room about what was going on. 
My mom came in and broke down in tears. She was almost hysterical. My brother and I looked at each other and tried not to laugh as my mom made the most dramatic sobbing noises I have ever heard. My mom asked me to stay, but I spent the night at a friend's to cool down and have some space. Nine years later, my brother and I still laugh about how ridiculously she behaved, and it's one of my favorite stories about my mom since it sums up our relationship. Oh, that That is awfulsome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, if you haven't listened to the episode with Melissa Villasenor, I recommend that because she also had an issue with uh, her mom's disapproval of, of her getting tattoos. And to me, it's not about the tattoo. You know, when that becomes an issue in a, in a, a relationship between a child and a parent, there's usually something going on underneath that. It's usually not limited to just tattoos. It's, uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, it, it's knowing when, where you end and the other person begins. And it sounds like your mom has a very fuzzy sense of where she ends and you begin. This is from the fears survey filled out by a woman who calls herself a risk averse. And she writes, I fear I will never fully trust myself or my partner. I finally found a person I can see a future with. And yet I still wonder if this is real. Is this love? What does love feel like? Am I being tricked into love by kindness? Because of gaslighting and bullying in my past, I'm never sure what I'm feeling or if it's real. I fear that this person is not attractive, not good enough, and that everyone can see it but me. Even though when I'm with her, everything feels more comfortable and natural than anything before, I feel seen, I feel accepted, and for the first time, I feel less, quote, other. I'm aware that my mind is trying to protect me, so it's constantly looking for faults and red flags. But I'm sick of the self-sabotage. As I work through this and when I'm able, I try to remind myself to listen to my gut in these moments. In my weaker moments, I hope I can reflect back to when I was sure of myself. Hold on to that and try not to fuck it up. Thank you for sharing that. And boy, is that a universal one, especially for people who grew up with a narcissistic caregiver. Um, and, you know, that... I'm just going to use the term fear of intimacy uh, to me is what's usually at, at work there. And that's a hard thing to work through because, you know, your, your feeling of safety and trust having been violated as a child, it skews your, your outlook on life. And so how do you relearn trust? Um, that's a good one. But for me, reading books about it, going to therapy, going to support groups, those those things all help me and especially having uh, a network of friends who speak as they say the language of the heart, who can talk about emotions, who can have heavy conversations and not get uncomfortable and just try to cover it with jokes. And speaking of help, uh, one of our sponsors for today, as always, is BetterHelp Online uh, Counseling. That's betterhelp.com. If you're interested in checking it out, go to BetterHelp dot com slash mental and make sure you include the slash metal part um, and uh, they'll ask you some questions and you just fill out a questionnaire and if they feel that they have a counselor that, that is a good fit for you they will pair you up with one and you can get 10 percent off your first month of therapy through them and i've been using them for years and um my my counselor donna uh has helped me work through 
so many things. Um, I'd never tried cognitive behavioral therapy before, and that's one of the things that, that she helped me incorporate into my thinking is looking at what are the facts on the ground rather than this world that I make up in my head and then base my feelings on. You know, I was doing that my whole life. And uh, yeah, I just uh, totally recommend betterhelp.com. So go to betterhelp.com slash mental. And then finally, this is just a little excerpt from a shame and secret survey filled out by... um, a woman who calls herself life is disgusting and uh, is is capitalized and uh, her darkest secret she writes before my dad passed away 98% of my sex life was forced sex from my family members after he died we moved to another state and I slept with anyone who looked my way four people one weekend and I'm not including Friday I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) Well... (laughs) I'm here with Joe Barksdale, who is a former NFL player, uh, mental health advocate, uh, musician, singer, songwriter, uh, recently started doing stand-up comedy about, what, six months ago? Mm-hmm. So we know that you're legally insane. That's, that's, that's where there, – there is something <clears> – <throat> In the psyche and the soul of people that want to do stand-up that I think is really, really particular. What, I mean, do you, do you agree with that? People that do more than one open mic, that come back for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I, oh, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I, in my opinion, there is obviously a need to express, but... I feel like a design, a desire to be seen, but to control the way in which we're seen. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like me, I do it to be understood. I don't, um, I'm, I'm not the best communicator all the time. Um, when it comes to just having conversations, sometimes it gets really hard to get my point across. Uh, some of that's probably due to the autism, but. People seem to understand me, you know, on stage. So I think for me, it was just addictive from being understood, you know. So much to talk about. Where where do I even begin? Uh, I did not realize that uh, you're on the spectrum. When when did you realize that was? Two years ago. Two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that something that 
developed later in life or no it was always there yeah um it was just treated differently throughout the years you know what's wrong with you why are you this way why would you think that was okay you know that kind of stuff um you have any specific examples it got me into football i uh i was at this engineering camp early in my high school years and uh not being aware of social situations, I thought it was time to play around. It wasn't time to play around. Uh, it was during a, during a class. And the kid that I thought I was playing with loses it, starts flipping over tables, like tossing stuff around. The kid was obviously getting abused at home. Um, and, you know, I got kicked out of the camp for bullying. Uh, and the dude that kicked me out of the camp was a teacher at my high school. So it was a residential camp at the University of Michigan, but most of the teachers were volunteers. Um, so he was a high school teacher at my school. His name is uh, Mr. Jones, I think. People hate that man. Anyway, I love him because without him, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have, you know, I would not have been playing football. But yeah, I got kicked out of, uh, I got kicked out of that camp on the second day. Um, and did you at the time have any idea that what you were doing was bullying? No, because it wasn't bullying. Like he asked a dumb question, and you know what we had, ta- what we were all talking about earlier that day was like, you know, when people say dumb shit, someone has to powder you up and you slap them on the back of the neck. So he, act- it was, st- I don't even remember what the question was. I was just like, bro, that's that's dumb. And he was sitting next to me, so you know, and he just went off. Wow. Um, and that was the beginning of my life. No, but yeah, that was uh, that's what happened. Uh, if if on your website it says you know uh, excuse Joe if he changes the subject when sports uh, comes up because on that day he might not feel like talking about sports uh, is it something that you are okay talking about today obviously yeah, yeah I'm talk okay about talking it. about it I just I mean the disclaimer is just. <sighs> To me, I felt like a statistic. Mm-hmm. You know, you black in America, the only way you made it out your city is, you know, you were rapping or playing ball. I was playing ball. And, like, it hurts my feelings when I hear people see me in public, like, oh, you must play football. Because in my mind, what I hear is, like, what else could your big black ass do for a living? You, and, you know, and then when you say no, it's like, oh, so you big for no reason? So my life is pointless if I'm not playing football, you know? And, uh... Sometimes people don't even realize they're doing it when they're doing it. And that is why I don't always like talking about football. Like it has nothing else to do with anything else. That's the, that is the reason. What are some, when you're out in public, what are some of the thoughts and feelings that that cross your mind being not only a black man in America, but uh, a, a physically imposing black man in America? I wish I was smaller. Yeah, like I wish I was smaller. That's that's it. Like I, you know, I just try to stay out the way, and you know, it's a contradiction to be my size trying to stay out the way. Uh, Joe is yeah. six six five, yeah, and uh, quite quite muscular. Uh, any incidents come to mind that you think kind of highlight uh, what it's like to be a 
a black man in America? I had this culture in college. Uh, we had some players that got in trouble at a bar or something. I had this coach in college uh, talking to the team the next day. Or maybe he was talking. No, he was just talking to me. I don't know how we got in this one-on-one conversation. I understood what he was trying to say. He said, you know, if I was a cop and I show up to an event, I wasn't even there. Like, I don't even like going to parties. He was like, you know, if I was a cop, I show up to an event. Like, I'm looking for the biggest one first, and I'm going to, you know, make sure he's under control. That one would be you. And I was like, God damn, like, it sounds like you talking about how to tame slaves. I mean, but, you know, like, there was a better way to say that. I don't know what the way was, but, yeah, like, you know. Um, Another example, I would say when my knee was broken, I broke my knee uh, my last, the last season I played in football, and it's real emasculating, degrading, dehumanizing to be in front of hundreds of thousands of people plus people at home and not being able to stand up under your own power. You got to get carted off the field, and it sucks even more to hear, shake it off, nigga, you'll be all right, from the stands of a fans at a home game. Wow. You know. So. Wow. Those are two that came to mind. What? What goes on inside you when you... Rage. Like, I mean, rage. Because if you do something, if you say something back, you're tripping. You know, yeah. they're not the ones that are fucked up. He, then you fall into the stereotype of the angry black man. That's right. Yeah. What a, what a catch-22. Rage. Yeah. I think that's another reason I probably got into comedy. It It is. Uh, I heard somebody call it a socially acceptable form of rage. I look back at my early stand-up comedy, and there was so much rage uh, underneath it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think often stand-up is the way for us to say what is not socially acceptable to say. Uh, yeah. is, does that ring true for you? Yeah, but I think part of that is going to be just because I'm autistic too, so I can't help but say, (laughs) you know, like whatever the truth is, whatever the facts are. I mean, I used to get slapped a lot for it when I was a kid, you know, but the truth is always going to be the truth, you know. Knowing that you have autism, uh, how has that, has that helped you? Has that uh, been a mind fuck? I mean, how? No, I think it explains some things. Um, I think it made me very, even more down on myself for a while. Cause I'm like, I got diagnosed with my mental illnesses after I got married and then I got diagnosed with autism too. And I feel like my wife pulled off the lot with a lemon, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I told her, I'm like, Hey babe, I, you know, all these things are coming up. I can understand if you want to. And she's like, you don't even remember. I was the first person to say like, you know, maybe you're autistic. We, we were watching, uh, the accountant, the Ben Affleck movie. And at the end of the movie, I remember I turned to her. You know how it is. You know, you're on a date, whatever, you're hanging out. And I'm like, wow, that was a really good movie. And she turns back and says, yeah. Hey, you think you're autistic? Like, <laughs> what? what made her say that? The main character was autistic. Oh, ben okay. A- yeah, Ben Affleck's character was autistic. And she's like, yeah, I just felt like I was watching you operate for a couple hours, you know. But, um... Yeah, I was, that was the one thing. I just, I did feel really bad. I felt like I had lied to my wife. We got married under false pretenses, you know. 
But, but, but you realize, of course, that she knew who you were just without the labels. So it's not like there was something was being, you know, some big surprise was being laid on her. Like all of a sudden you changed. That mm -hmm. would, to me, would be different. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. What What else were you diagnosed with? Uh, chronic depression and um, anxiety. <laughs> Other than that, you're fucking doing great, Joe. Thank you. It's funny because, like, even as I'm just talking to you about it, I don't know what it is about anxiety. I just feel it's like, and I'm as someone who's diagnosed with anxiety, it's like the participation trophy of mental illness. Like, oh, I'm so nervous, you know. So, like, I, I don't even bring it. I remember one time. I, I remember I said it in front of a group of kids. I was like, you know, depression, anxiety. We understand that the depression kills people, but are you saying you just get nervous a lot? Like, you can do some push-ups or something? And ever since then, I'm like, okay, if the children, you know, have such a big discrepancy or uh, has such a big difference between depression and anxiety. But I don't know. Sometimes I do think like a child, so. But, yeah, I, depression and anxiety and autism. I, I think it's so rare to see depression without anxiety or anxiety without depression. Yeah. I I don't see it uh, that much. Uh, I think also anxiety can be something that's hard to recognize in ourselves. Well, depression as well, because it's our normal. But uh, I think a lot of people with anxiety present a chill exterior uh, in, in a way to cope and then you just think of yourself as a as a chill person because you're chill outwardly mm. but inwardly you know there's fear of leaving the house not for any specific reason just because it feels like you know jumping into an ice cold pool Does mm. it, are those feelings talk about your anxiety don't let me put uh, words in your mouth i would say my anxiety for the most part would manifest itself in like Thinking about, like you said, what could go wrong? Like, you know, you have a day where things are going great and it's like, oh shit. You know, like what's about to happen? That kind of thing. That's how, that's how I would describe it. For me, myself, or like even if I'm out in public, you know, if I'm at a party or something, it's like, oh, all these people are around here. Let me try to back away, you know, move out this up. Oh, I just elbowed this old lady in the face. Now I'm about to get sued. They're going to call the cops. I'm about to get murdered. Like, just all these things just go through my head, you know. Oh, it, it's and they ping pong. It it yeah. it happens so fast, and it. That's one of the reasons why I think journaling is is such a great idea, and opening up to to people because when you have to put it into a sentence, you can diffuse it a lot of times because you can see how black and white the the thinking is, how exaggerated it it is. Yeah. Do you do you ever journal all the time? Yeah, I, I journal at least twice a day. Um, I mean, I've been doing it like since creative writing classes in middle school. Um, I use this app called Journey. I've probably been using it now for like six years, but every day. And a lot of my first jokes were journal entries, you know, because, um, you know, you, like you said, you can express yourself, that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I journal every day. What are some of the epiphanies you've had if you've had any uh while while journaling i got to imagine there there have been some the laughter it feels so good for me when people laugh at my jokes because it feels like acceptance uh like people want to have me around and it feels probably way better than it should because 
my parents didn't want me. They wanted a girl, you know. Um, I was made aware of that from a young age. I mean, shit, I know, you know, like, you're not supposed to know that as a kid, you know. Right. Like, I, yeah, but, um, yeah, they, they, they wanted a girl. And I think, like, I remember, you know, talking to my mom about that when I was younger. It was the day before, the night before my birthday. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I just, you know, you don't seem excited about your birthday. And I'm like, I just, I just feel like things would be better if I weren't here. Like, that's how y'all make me feel. And I'm talking, I was like seven, eight, you know. Um, wow, that that is heavy, man. Yeah, but life is heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It but is. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, it was the same with football. Like, I talked to my therapist about it a lot. Like, trying to, I mean... I wanted so bad to go to the Pro Bowl to win some games, to be recognized as something better than the piece of shit that I always felt like I was, you know. Um, when was the first time you expressed outwardly that you felt like a piece of shit? Probably that night when I told my uh, mom that I thought, you know, and it felt worse when I started getting screamed at. Then my dad comes in the room like, you know, now I got to deal with this. Look what you've done. You know, that kind of thing. Wow. So instead of taking it in and having empathy. I almost got beat. Yeah. That's so fucked up. It is. But I mean, I got a bunch of those kind of stories with my parents, you know. Um, Did you have siblings? Yeah. yeah, I had two little brothers. Yeah. And how were they treated? <sighs> Similarly. Yeah. Similar Similarly. Like. I want to say, and I don't even have a relationship with anybody in my family, really, except maybe my aunt, because that is the source of a lot of my anxiety. You know, like, I remember having panic attacks, seeing mom's calling, oh, shit, you know. Um, but, yeah, all three of us are on some kind of mental health medication, or it should be. How did your parents react when you started achieving success uh in the nfl i don't know you didn't have contact with them yeah then? no not really like they came out to a game or two but around the time i got married in 2015 and kind of you know started looking at things from a different perspective you know and realizing that the family that was important to me most important to me was the one that was living inside my house and in order for me to be the best me i can be for that family my family can't be in my life because they stress me the fuck out. And they, you know, I mean, I had a, you know, I had an aunt steal money from me. It's just, and my dad never said anything to her about it. And it was his sister. And is that the aunt that you... No, that's not the contact. one I talked to. Okay, about. I was going to say. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like your picker might I'll still be this. broken, Joe. I'll say this. And I can't speak... To my dad. My mom is an obese black woman. For about 32 years, I'm 32 years old. For about 32 years, I would get visibly angry and upset every time I saw an obese black woman. An obese woman, period, but especially an obese black woman. And an obese black woman with a short haircut, I'm like, why do I want to punch this woman in the face? And it wasn't until I was talking to my therapist about it. Oh, my mom is an obese black woman with a short haircut. And my mom fucked me up so bad that I restrained from taking it out on every obese woman I see. My dad is why I hate lazy people. Yeah. So. 
You learn a lot about yourself in therapy. When did you start therapy? Seriously, in 2016, 17. I dabbled in it all the way back, like around 2013, 14. Uh, what year did you retire from the NFL? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, 2018? 2018. Oh, it was pretty recently. Yeah. And what were the moments that kind of... Uh, Led to retirement? No, well, I want to talk about that as well, oh. but the, that gave you the final push to go to therapy. Oh, to go to therapy. Um, or was it just a general feeling of... No, nah, suicide attempt in 2017. Talk, are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, I don't even... I don't see it as an attempt because it's not like I actually like stabbed myself <laughs> because our knives were too dull and I didn't know how to sharpen them. <laughs> but yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> I got on YouTube and looked up how to sharpen dull knives. And I'm trying to sharpen my and anybody like Stevie Wonder could see like, hey, bro, these knives, ain't, they're not going to get sharp. You just make a noise. But uh, <laughs> but if you wanted to have toast before you killed yourself, you Absolutely. were in luck. It would have been great. Yeah. Such a content look on his face. I think it was the toast. But, yeah, um, yeah it was. that's that's what happened. Um, I would say in 2014, that was when I first started playing guitar. It was just uh, going back to when I started playing football in high school. I had no idea what football was. You know, I'm coming from engineering camp. I'm just trying to get out the house. And it quickly becomes something. People start seeing stuff in me. And it's not just a size thing. I play with a bunch of big people that never made it to college, let alone the NFL. People always think, like, if you're big, you're supposed to be good at football. That's a rumor, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, people were happy to have me around. People thought that I could do great things. I felt like I was somebody. The only other time I felt like that was, like, you know, when I was on stage when I was younger, you know, doing oratorical contests and poems at church events. So... That got addicted really fast. And there was this dude named Charleston Fives who was the, uh, he was the defensive coordinator of our uh, high school football team. Back when I was in high school, only the defensive players were going to college. I'm like, well, shit, you know, maybe I can start playing defense, you know. Um, Fives sees something, still to this day, don't know what he saw. Um, met with my dad one day during our, um, during a summer fundraising event, said, you know, you let me work with your son. I can promise you I can get him into any of these colleges in this magazine. He was looking at this, uh, like, Athlon Sports magazine. And I remember him flipping through the pages like, what the fuck? University of Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, but not just those colleges. SEC schools at Florida, LSU. This dude's bullshitting. Two years later, I was a Parade All-American, and I had offers to all those schools. And you um, chose LSU? And I chose LSU. And I, you know, went to college, and Fives was – there with me, you know, not in college with me, but right. you know, he was, I mean, he was pretty much my dad. And then he died in a car accident in 2013 or 14. One of those two. I remember, um, I had to go to work that day too. I think that's one of the reasons why I don't have much compassion on people all the time. Cause like, how many people you know are at work when their dad dies? You know, um, but that's why I started playing. That's why I started playing guitar. That was also the first, that death was also the first time that I met with a therapist. That's not true. They had me meet with the therapist at LSU a couple of times. I just didn't know these were therapy sessions at the time. 
But this was the first time I was meeting with a therapist, and I knew I was meeting with a therapist. And he started bringing up stuff about antidepressants and mental health diagnoses and all that other kind of stuff. And I'm like, bro, I'm not crazy. Get the fuck out. You know. Mm-hmm. That, you know. Um, so I tried again later on that year, you know, after he died. And I felt like I was getting better. So I stopped. And then I tried to kill myself in 2017. And I was like, well, you know, I got a wife and kids now. And kids didn't ask to be here. Wife didn't ask to marry a dude that was going to kill himself. Got to fix it. Got to do something. You know. Uh, so I started going to therapy. What were the issues uh, that when you were in college, uh, they nudged you into therapy? I had a terrible coach. Like the dude used to berate me all the time. And I remember, because I remember the therapist saying, like, he's not coaching you, he's coaching the player you could be. I'm like, I get that. I just started playing this sport like two years ago, you know? I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. This dude needs to lay off. That kind of thing. And pretty much, I think that was part of it. And I think part of it was just they had us all meet with a therapist at the beginning of like freshman year. So, um,. But I'm sure I didn't give off any causes for concern because I was just quiet, sitting there confused, you know. Do you feel like the culture around mental health has changed in professional sports or the NFL? Yeah. Yeah. Just off the simple fact that, like, People talk, I mean, you had guys like, uh, I know it's not football, but dudes like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, who talk about meeting with therapists, performance coaches, whatever, what have you. Even with LeBron now being involved with like the Calm app, uh, the meditation effort, you know, I, I do think it has changed for the better. And, but of course, just like with anything, basketball is going to be way quicker to adopt to it than football. So, and why is that? I don't know. <laughs> That's just what it is. Like, I mean, even as a dude who played in the NFL, it's like I always saw myself as a second-rate sports player because, like, I wasn't playing basketball or baseball. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I always saw myself as second class. I remember one time it was me and a bunch of offensive linemen. We were all on the same team. We were going out for an all-line trip, and we went to Vegas. We were in some private room. And you know how it is when you're in a private room in a restaurant. People are walking by, you know, looking to see Who's who it there? is. Yeah. I'll never forget it. This dude's name is Kenny Wiggins. Kenny's, I think Kenny's still playing. Kenny's hilarious. I love Kenny. Anyway, people are walking by. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there. I'm like, who Who do they think is in here? Kenny's like, I know, right? They're going to be, man, you know, I thought someone was in there. It's just a group of D-list celebrities. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a D-list. But, uh, yeah, so, like, football is always, and I mean, even in the even in the black community. Like, I can't speak for anybody else's community because I didn't grow up there. But, like, I played high school football in Detroit. No one gave a fuck. Like, now, if I was a basketball player, those games were packed. Football? Yeah. Yeah, basketball was the sport. Yeah. Basketball. And, I mean, it's weird. You even talk to NFL athletes. They'll lie to you and tell you something else. But, like, especially, like, receivers, they could they would have played basketball if they could have. Yeah. Like, it's... Basketball just seems to care more about the players. They seem to have a better union. It just seems to be more together. It seems like basketball is like, you know, 
the NAACP and football is like slavery. You know what I'm saying? Wow. I mean, you even had an owner say, like, we can't let the prisoners take over the prison. You know, football is like slavery. I don't care what anybody, I mean, yeah, it's like slavery. I mean, even when you look at, like, the draft the process, you know, having to show how fast you can run, how high you can jump, all this other kind of stuff. It all goes back to the super slave breeding program, you know. And so that's, I mean, that's even what we call ourselves. Like, you go to a football practice, you know, you hear people, tell them about the gun line, boss. You know, reenacting Negroes in southern jails and work camps. Because that's what it feels like. Because that's what it is. So if somebody were to say to you, let me just be devil's advocate here. If somebody were to say to you, but but you're getting paid so much money, it's it's not the same thing. And that's why I call it prostitution. Yeah. I've heard people say that about acting as prostitution as, as well. Yeah, I've heard uh, several actors talk about that. And I think the reason I hear them talk about it is they've worked with enough directors where their creative input is not acknowledged mm -hmm. and it's just stand here, look Deliver this way, lines. do that. Yeah. And, and is that kind of similar in the NFL where you feel like you're, you're stripped of your authenticity and you're just part of something? Yeah, look what happened to all these NFL players that started trying to take knees because football players were, I mean, because unarmed kids that look like them were shot. What would that feel like when you saw the backlash? It hurt. It really hurt when they lost the Kalu. That's another reason I retired. They lost the Kalu's and lost it to Colin Kaepernick. Pretty much coming out and saying, like, you know, what everyone had been theorizing for years. Like, yep, we did it. We're evil. Here's your money. Back up. I, I don't think I understood. They lost what? A collusion lawsuit with Colin Kaepernick and I think Eric Reed and a couple other cats were on there. Because, um, you know, after Colin Kaepernick got cut, there were way worse quarterbacks that were getting picked up, starting even. Right. And um, he filed a collusion lawsuit. Colin did. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning the owners were getting together and saying we're gonna we're gonna blackball this guy, you blackball him and anybody else that wants to take a knee and speak up about injustice. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 mind blowing to me that somebody could value a song more than a, a human life. It's mind blowing to me that people think that you're trying to shit on the national anthem. It's even more mind-blowing to me that you want stolen people in a stolen land to sing a stolen song. National Anthem is, is stolen from a British song. I didn't know that. Yeah. Sorry. That's but then you got fans that are pissed off because people are taking knees. Meanwhile, they're ordering beers. You know, that's so fucking disrespectful. Two beers over here, S.A. <laughs> Let my wife get something, too. Let's get a selfie over here, babe. And the star. You know, like screaming over, screaming different words over the anthem. Flying a flying a treasonous Confederate flag, saying that Jesus was white. Like, I, and this is the this is the main fan base. And how much did that contribute to you deciding to to walk away? Not much. I would say, if anything, 
it just makes me very weary of like talking to sports, like especially football fans. Like, oh, I love football. Oh, you must be a racist piece of shit. I know you're not. That is where my brain goes to immediately, and I have to work to not be because that's not everybody. Right. But I'd be lying if I said every time someone came up to me, it was like, oh, you know, or whoever. I'm talking to someone, and they're like, oh, I love football. First thing I hear is, get up, nigga. You're fine. You know. It's got to be a lot to manage mentally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is, but, you know. It's your normal. Yeah, it's just, that's, you know, my life. It brings a lot of good material and songs and art and, you know, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it is. So what led to the walking away from it? Because you were certainly not at the end of your ability. And you were an off offensive lineman? Mm-hmm. I got the, tired the of The bass players of football. Yeah. I got tired <laughs> no of feeling recognition. like shit. I got tired of feeling like a statistic. I got tired of feeling like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like my ancestors would be pissed off if they could see me now like we did all this protesting all this marching we escaped slavery so that you could just become a fucking entertainer in the sports world and then now you're doing music and comedy what the fuck like that's well, how i feel that that sounds to me like you're being so hard on yourself i don't know what it's like to be you so forgive me if uh oh no my therapist is the same I'm, thing okay I tell her she's wrong. No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> No, she's right. It, it just, yeah, it, it is. I mean, that's, you know, one of the millions of things I got to work on. I'm, I'm slowly chipping away at it, but that's how I feel. Talk about intergenerational uh, trauma in the in the black community. If, if I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, because you'd be surprised how many people have black friends who will just find shit to get angry about. And it's because you need to go be talking to a therapist because you got trauma that you haven't dealt with. I got a friend of mine. I won't say his name, but uh, it's like no matter what we're talking about, he will find a way to bring it back to something that pisses him off. For example, mm -hmm. what's going on, bro? Oh, no, man. You know, just scrolling Facebook, you know, because, you know, looking at all these women, you know, talking about what would you do if your boyfriend did this or what would you do if your boyfriend did that? And they don't even have a fucking man. So I don't understand where these bitches get off thinking that I'm supposed to be going to work so that they can take all the money that I'm making. And it's like, whoa, bro, calm down, you know, because then, you know, and then, then it'll be some telling ass statement. And my friend did not say this, but, you know, it'll be some telling ass statement. Like, you know, because they, they ain't going to fuck me over like my mom did my dad. You know, that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's like, hey, bro, you need to talk about this. It's draining being around people like that. I have a, a, a friend that uh, I, I just sometimes I'll, I'll try to steer him away from the topic. But he gets on this topic of this guy that gets on his nerves and he just wants to tell story after story after story. And it's like, well, why are you hanging out with this guy? Yeah, same. I'm like, dog, just maybe not. Maybe don't get on social media or, you know, remind yeah. yourself that these women are not in relationship. You know, that kind of thing. I, I People like self-flagellation. And, and I think uh, self-righteousness can, can be a drug. And it's so easy to see where we are locking ourselves in a prison of our own making. You know, being resentful at somebody that we have 
the power to distance ourselves from. Yes. I mean, that that's so awesome that you distance yourself from your family. That I imagine that probably saved your life. Yeah, but it also did not endear me to the black community. Really? You never turn on your mama. Yeah. Like, you never turn. I mean, dudes would rather you nail them to a cross than talk shit about their mom. And for me to just say, like, fuck my mom. Unheard of. You know? Um, but to answer your question about the generational trauma. So I can only, I'll speak about the things that I know from both of my parents' sides. And we'll just go back to their parents' parents. Start with my mom's side of the family. My granddad grew up on a farm in Alabama. My grandma grew up on a farm in Mississippi. They were both in sharecropping families because their parents were the sons and daughters of former slaves or former slaves themselves. Like my grandma's grandma was a slave. Um, after slavery was abolished, most, most enslaved Negroes ended up moving back on plantations to keep working for nothing because what else I'm going to do? You know, I'm going to get lynched if I try to go vote or get a job in the city. There's going to be a cross burn on my, you know, so mm -hmm. that happened. Those people went home and beat their kids out of frustration. Those kids had kids, became sharecroppers. I, I imagine, and, too, when you are getting beat as a slave, you know, that certainly has to contribute to your uh, you compulsion have, to beat your kids. But you don't have kids when you're a slave. You know, like, oh, it's a baby, my baby. Was, you know, you getting sold tomorrow. Or that, like, you know, like you don't, slaves weren't raising their kids. If anything, sometimes slave masters would have, like, boys beat their parents. Like, yeah, you beat your daddy so you can know that I'm the motherfucker you're supposed to listen to, not him. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, so you get to my parents' parent i mean my uh grandparents parents like i said they were sharecroppers mm -hmm. living on the farm like my grandma could only go to school when it rained because those were the days she couldn't work in the field granddad was even worse because he didn't even graduate the fifth grade like, i think he stopped at like second or third maybe fourth um and then all that kind of stuff happens because now you're talking when you're talking about my grandparents it's the civil rights movement and the things that led to the civil rights movement you know like, Richard Pryor has a joke about that. You know, you're talking about going out for a nice night on the town, and all of a sudden, you know, pull over, nigga, get the, get the fuck out of the car, it's a robbery, he looks just like you, you know. Spread your cheeks, lift your sack, that kind of thing. And it's like, who, who feels like going out on a date after that? You know, you go, and he even says it in the joke, like, you know, you go home and beat your kids or some shit, you gotta take it out on somebody. And so, those kids who were getting beat, um, like I said, my granddad, my granddad went to Nam, Vietnam. You know, he fought in Vietnam. Um, and I heard, like, ever since he got back, he always had, like, a cigarette or some liquor in his hand. Even when you talk about the family dynamic, because there was no family dynamic in slavery, like, my granddad had a kid before he met my grandma. And that kid was, like, 10 years older than my mom. The kid died of a, uh, of a disease. I got to meet him one time. But I remember when my granddad took me to meet him. This is my first time hearing about him. And I'm, like, five, six. You know, we're going to go meet my son. You got a son? I thought you just had two daughters. Yeah, his son lived out in California, another mother. Like, it was just normal. I'm oh, shit, okay. <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, so all that shit comes down on my parents, my mom in, in particular, who I think is also mentally unstable, but that's a whole other story. And then you got my dad. His His was a more violent tale because, obviously, he was a boy for one. I don't know what happened to his daddy, but, like, I never met his dad. 
um, I remember hearing about his dad dying and thinking, thank God. Now maybe I don't have to hear about this motherfucker. My dad spent his entire, he, my dad spent my entire childhood, no matter what would happen, like, you know, hey, we're going to go get some ice cream tomorrow. All right, cool. Tomorrow comes. Dad, I thought we were getting ice cream. No, you ain't getting ice cream. <sighs> and that's, uh, oh, oh, you think you got it bad? At least I'm coming home. At least I'm not beating the shit out y'all for no reason like my dad would do to me, you know. Like his dad was apparently like a, a junkie, abusive, you know, that kind of, like I never met him. I remember I saw his picture for the first time two years ago and my first thought was like, damn, he looks so much like my dad. Um, but yeah, my dad had, it was, he had three brothers, two brothers. It was three of them. He had two brothers. I think each of them tried to kill this man or like, like once or twice throughout their lives. Um, but I know like no one's born that way, you know. The same way, you know, like no one's born that way. And you got a bunch of people dealing with a bunch of trauma that they need to deal with. I mean, a bunch of people dealing with trauma or not even dealing with it, just going through it and coping with the trauma that they should be dealing with. And then on top of that, and talking about the black community, you got a demon inside of you. If there's a mental health diagnosis, you know, um, it's not. It's not the generational trauma and all the bad things that have happened to you and your parents and your parents, but nah, this is a demon inside of you. So you're speaking from the point of view of pe people who don't understand it, right? Yeah, which is most. Right. You know, I've had people come up to me after church services like, "You just need to pray more." That's all. Oh, even people in the black community. Mm -hmm. What's yeah. what's that feel like? It feels like you're getting disowned by your own race, you know. Because even when you talk about, like, my race, first of all, human race. But when you talk about being black, a black American, like, you're not African-American. You weren't born in Africa and brought over here, you know. Africans hate us. I don't know if people know that. Like, Africans look down on us, especially Nigerians. But yeah, really? Yeah. What, what, based on what? The way we talk, you know, stereotypically, you know, the way we dress, the rap music, all that kind of shit. Like, they didn't sell us into slavery, and that's what we did to cope, you know. I mean, Roy Wood Jr. is like, we invented the blues. We invented the blues. And people didn't even want to hear the blues until some until a bunch of white guitarists started playing it in the U.K. These same blues players that you hear Eric Clapton and all these cats talk about, they died on the road because they weren't getting paid shit because ain't nobody want to hear them play it. And it pisses me off. It pisses, and I know, I don't care what anybody thinks. It pisses me off to hear people say, like, oh, Eric Clapton, you know, the greatest blues guitar. Jimi Hendrix is a better blues guitar player than Eric Clapton, let alone the motherfuckers that came before him. Who the fuck is Eric Clapton? Sorry. No need to apologize. I mean, it, it's a fact of... Uh that that's like even I mean even like BB King, Freddie King, Albert King, I love like Freddie King. Freddie King died on tour. Freddie King died on tour because he had to work that hard to provide for his family. I love Freddie King too. Freddie yeah. King was like a taller, you know, bigger dude like Albert King, but nobody was listening to them. They were playing on the Chitlin circuit to no one, and then their records get covered by cats like 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 Lead Belly. Led Zeppelin stole so many of his songs, and Willie Dixon. Oh my God! Well, he had his family had to had to sue Led Zeppelin. I don't think there's any more egregious example of uh, just outright theft. But Led Zeppelin will always be remembered as one of the greats. 
you know, I'm, I'm able to separate and maybe it's cause I'm, you know, a, a white guy, but I'm able to appreciate the sounds they got in the studio and the riffs that they wrote, uh, the ones where they weren't ripping off, yeah. you know, the Lemon Song or you know, Traveling Riverside Blues or a lot yeah, of special. a lot of the other ones. But I have a hard time listening to it now and and not having it you know, be affected by the knowledge that you know probably half dozen other songs were outright stolen. Uh, there are a few bands that that uh, I think the Rolling Stones in particular that. Uh, you know, were vocal about where yeah. they learned from and having artists open for them. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why everyone loves the Rolling Stones. <laughs> 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 I mean, they were just, yeah, like you said, they were just down to earth cats, but like, I guess the Eric Clapton thing, the reason I said like, fuck Eric Clapton is cause there are, there's video of him like ranting about, letting immigrants into England and keeping the blacks oppressed and that kind of shit. What? Yes. What was it? When was this from? This was sometime a little bit before Hendrix got out there, apparently, but it's, I saw it on the, I heard about it at first on the documentary and I wanted to do research on it and it's there. He was using, I mean, you know, different kind of racial slurs for the time, but like, what? Yeah. I mean, but no one's perfect. Like we're, we're all fucked up. That's the other thing. Like as much as I want to be like, Oh, like, Nobody's perfect. We all got shit that we don't want people to know about. All of us. Even even you listening to this saying, no, I don't. Everyone has shit. That's why people get judgmental. Because it's like, oh, I may be this, but at least I'm not a pedophile. Or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But like, you know, stabbing your mother in the back to steal $50 to smoke crack. Maybe it's as bad as like touching kids. Just maybe. Yeah. Maybe wrong is wrong. I don't know. I was in Iowa years and years ago, and on the front page of the newspaper, and this was unintentional on their part, I I believe, there was a story uh, of a guy who had been molesting children, and he was given like a year in jail, and there was a black guy who was caught uh, with, I don't know, you know, maybe a couple of grams of crack and was given 10 years in prison. Yeah, well, you know how the police started. They started as slave catchers. Did you know that? Mm-mm. Police started as slave catchers. Like, the, you go back and look at how the police began in this country. They were catching people like me that ran away. So, what do you expect that system to devolve into? But then people say that we bitching and complaining about nothing. Like, the police didn't start as slave catchers. But yeah. So what what are the issues that fuck with you the most dated? All lives matter. Yeah. That shit pisses me off. Because if all lives mattered, I wouldn't be out here saying mine did. Just shut the fuck up and listen to what's happening. For five seconds. Yeah. Five seconds. Like, you told me that Jesus was white. You told me that I'm not shit because of my skin color. You told me all this other kind. Now you're trying to tell me that all lives matter, even though George Floyd had a neck. I mean, a knee put on his neck for nine minutes. No one did anything. And the black community was nervous about the dude getting off. But all lives matter.
Because we and I, the reason it pisses me off is because everyone's getting behind stop Asian hate. Why don't we stop all hate? Stop transphobia. Why don't we stop all phobias? Like, and that's there not, isn't an epidemic <laughs> across all racial yeah. lines. I think that's what those people fail to understand. I also think there's a subconscious fear in them that the the black rage is going to come and swallow them if blacks get more power. It's not a if, it's a win at this point. Minorities, all they've been doing is multiplying and taking over more and more and more. I mean, you can even see it with the elections and stuff now. I mean, at... I'm with you 100% though, because I am on, I'm 100% on board with it. Like, it needs to be better. Not, oh, now it's my turn in power, motherfucker. Y'all gonna know what time, nah. Like, you just becoming the people that you hate. It's not a good idea. You know, are you becoming the thing mm-hmm. that you hate that people do? Yeah. Um, I don't know. All I know is to live in a country where people being pissed off that another black dude was killed egregiously in front of everybody. It's called rioting. But then motherfuckers stormed the Capitol and it's called a protest. Can you imagine if it had been black people, how many people would have been shot? I ain't gonna lie. If it had been black people, my suicidal ass would have been. <laughs> <laughs> is that Joe Barksdale running, leading the front line? Oof. Ah, but with Why my has luck- he got a target painted on his back? <laughs> with my luck, I'd probably get hit in the leg or something. <laughs> But yeah, uh, yeah, people don't want to acknowledge that, but it's true. So what brings you peace and what brings you comfort, if if anything? Being the change I want to see in the world. It's one thing to know what you know. It's another thing to know what you know and not perpetuate it. And does that help you let go when feelings of, I don't know, hopelessness, anger? No. I just, uh, ride the wave. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't, um, try to like suppress my emotions. That's where the journaling and stuff comes in. Um, but yeah, at the same time, I can't act like they don't exist. I think if anything, I try to look at them from like the third person. You know, is it like if you're standing in a train station as a train passes by, figuring out everything you can about the train, but when it's gone, it's gone. You don't pull it back. So, that. I appreciate your honesty and and vulnerability about uh, yeah, sharing yeah. about all this stuff, I know some of it. Uh, and I didn't fly out here to be. Uh, no, I'm just, <laughs> I didn't fly out here to keep secrets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been wanting to have you on for a while, and I'm and I'm glad that we finally made it made it uh, happen. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, it's funny. I remember seeing commercials of uh, dinner in a movie when I was younger. I remember thinking, like, one day I'm gonna learn how to cook. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I, uh, I was very excited when I heard about this opportunity. So thank oh, you for having me. Oh, man, my, my I hope pleasure. I haven't been, like, You've super been great. depressing. Okay. No, you haven't. And, you know, that's one of the things that we have to fucking overcome, both personally and as a society, is the fear of bumming people out. 
I think that kills mm-hmm. more people than, you know. Oh, I think that's the difference. Like, so I will say this. I did just say I hope, you know, ABC, XYZ. But at the same time, like, I don't give a fuck if I am. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, I hope that fart didn't stink, but I'm right. still going to let it yeah. out, you know. Yeah. That's how I feel. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. One of the things that I said, and this is the, the truth, was, you know, Trump becoming president uh, took away my fear of dying. <laughs> <laughs> I have a fear of suffering, <laughs> but honestly, between global warming and <sighs> and the shit that's going on in this in this country, I wish I could be more hopeful. Um, and maybe that's just how I how I feel. That's me just trying to be funny to to pass it off, you know. And I'm a fucking white dude. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a you know a gay person or a trans person of color in in a wheelchair i mean fuck yeah it's funny that's when i started getting nervous when white people started getting nervous about trump it was like oh I, I, that's when i was like oh shit that's the uh, canary in the coal mine because for me I, I i didn't care like ever since the founding of this country i mean we weren't even you know like africans were still slaves during the first couple presidents so for me I don't know. There's so many. It's just the government seems so stagnant. It, sometimes it doesn't matter. It doesn't seem like it matters who's in there. Like, and, and, and both parties are corrupt. It is. It is not a problem with one party. It's. I think until you get money uh, out of politics, I think until. Uh, I agree. You know, I, I just don't think there's. You, they can't get reelected without selling out to someone. Because you need the money. You need the money. And uh, I'm not saying that's okay, but that's the reality. That's the reality. Of it. Yeah. And then you got to uphold all these promises when you do get in the office. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm not gonna sit here and say like I was indifferent to Trump's presidential election, but at the same time, I don't know. Like I remember when he got elected, and I was just like, all right, we'll see what happens in four years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to believe it's the same country that elected Barack Obama. And, you know, I try to remember that. No, it's not. Those protests and all that shit just didn't get press. The same shit was happening when Obama was president. No, but I mean, the fact that enough people voted for Obama that he was president. I I don't think that. But they just elected a black vice president. Like it's, It's the same country. You know, it's the same country. It's just. There's so many variables. It's not just like Y equals MX plus B. It's like Y equals MX plus B is in parentheses times X, Y, Z, you know, by A divided by four times, you know, like it's just, it's just so many variables in the equation. Um, yeah, so many variables. I mean, you don't even have to vote here. Like you don't have to. Like I know in some countries you get fined. Yeah. My girlfriend's from Ecuador and it's mandatory. Yeah. To vote. Like, I'm off of the freedoms and all that other kind of stuff. It's just so many double standards. Yeah. I mean, flying the Confederate flag is treasonous. Like, it's, it's treason, you know. But what's even scary, I mean, it's funny, like, because, you know, I, if you can't tell, I do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. What's really scary to me is, like, if the Confederacy was bigger, they would have won the Civil War because their generals were just way better than the ones that, like, way better and that shit scares the fuck out of me like the same way 
if Adolf Hitler hadn't been so ambitious, they might have. If he Got had been more hole. patient. Yeah. <laughs> That's so Which fucked is, up. It's so scary. So scary. You know? Um, you, but yeah, I don't know why I said that, but yeah. it's scary. <laughs> Do you believe in God or? Yeah, I believe have, in God. Yeah. I believe, um, yeah, I believe in God in heaven. Um, I do believe that as human beings, there have been a lot of like, you know, misconceptions and people putting their own spin on God and all that other kind of stuff. But I do believe a God exists. And I do believe that if that God was so uncomplex as we try to make him seem sometimes, he wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I do. Somebody said to me one time, if God was small enough for me to understand, it wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems. And that's, that's where I'm yes. at, too. And I, I also believe... You know what really, like, hammer home my belief in God was humor. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about humor. It comes from, like, the worst shit that's ever happened to you, and you're able to make that beautiful and funny. Yeah. That, Not just tolerable, but funny. Yeah. And healing. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, God isn't the absence of bad things. More than anything, God, to me, is comfort during the bad things. It's mm-hmm. just one of the laws of the universe is there's pain. But there's also joy and, you know, all that. I mean, here's the deal about the bad things. If half the shit that I was talking to you about today doesn't happen to me, I'm not sitting here. I think people forget that. Like, mm-hmm. You can't become, I mean, and that's something I've seen time and time again. Like, you can become a person of greatness through hard times. I mean, and hard times... I'm not going to lie, like hard times, this is something else that I've researched. Hard times, your hard times can sometimes make it better for other people. Mm -hmm. Because I really believe if the Holocaust didn't happen, those Jewish immigrants that came over here from there would never have been talking to them black kids about, hey, now this is what they did to us in Germany. I'm telling y'all right now, this is what it's looking like for y'all. Y'all need to do something. Like, people don't know that, but like the Jewish people are a huge part of that. Civil rights movement. Yeah. You know, um, and I'm thankful for it. It's, I'm, I, I am not thankful for the Holocaust, but without the Holocaust, we probably wouldn't be sitting here for different reasons, you know, mm-hmm. Jim Crow and so forth. Um, this is the same with American slavery. It's the same with anything, you know, like, yeah, it sucks. But once again, I'm not here if it doesn't happen. And for someone like me, it also gives me some form of purpose, if nothing else, like for the rest of the people that weren't able to do nothing. You know, Mm -hmm. that's why I speak out about everything that I talk about now. Even when you talk about like mental health stuff or stuff that, you know, NFL players want to say or whatever, because if somebody don't say it, then it's nothing's going to change. And you need someone that just doesn't give a Fuck. And that's where I come in. Cause I don't care. Like, you know, I don't like that. I don't care. I, I don't care. You know? Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's why I talk so openly about stuff like that. Cause I know that there are like a bunch of people that feel like I did, feel like I do. And I want them people to know if no one else around them is telling them like, no, you're not, you're not tripping. You're not crazy. Yeah. You know? Well, Joe, thanks for, c- for coming in. I, I appreciate it. And, oh, thanks uh, for having me. If people want to know more about you, they can go to JoeBarksdale.com. JoeBarksdale.com, And yeah. they can listen to uh, your music. Mm-hmm. Um, they can 
find your social media links, mm-hmm. etc. That's et when I'll be posting stand-up stuff, too. I'm recording a special next year. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Buddy, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Maybe I'll come again one day. Love it. <laughs> Can't wait to see the reviews about this. What the fuck does he mean he doesn't like Eric Clapton? What, what, do you, what does this podcast become? <laughs> <laughs> really enjoyed talking to him. Be sure to uh, check his stuff out. We'll put uh, links to his stuff in the show notes, as we always do every episode. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. This episode is sponsored by Prolon. Extended fasting of at least two to three days has unique benefits such as cellular rejuvenation, an idea that was awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize in Medicine, and Prolon is based on that. It's a plant-based nutrition program that nourishes the body while making cells believe that they're fasting. Uh, my package just arrived. It's uh, Each day has its own little container with very clear instructions on how you're going to do it. And I'm very interested to, to see how, uh, how it's going to go. Prolon isn't a diet. Prolon is science. Right now, Prolon is offering Metal Illness Happy Hour listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash podcast. That's P-R-O-L-O-N life.com slash podcast for this special offer. That's prolonlife.com slash podcast. Uh, should we dive into some surveys? Am I jumping the gun? Am I being uh, presumptuous? This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And Bad Wife asks, do you think do you ever think it's okay to feel sorry for yourself? I got involved with a coworker for three years, even though we are both married to other people. He says we were just good friends, but if he hugs, holds, hands with, kisses, gets hand jobs and blow jobs from all his good friends, he needs some serious therapy. Last month, he left his wife and I gave him money to help him get set up on his own, only to find out last week he's taken up with another co-worker. I suspect he's living with her, even though he says he's staying with his sister. I'm so sorry for the sad 15-year-old inside of me who would give away everything, even the money she got from her mom for her birthday, just to make other people happy. 
I'm sorry for her because she doesn't think she deserves things. Everyone else is more deserving. I know I did it to myself and I don't have a moral leg to stand on, but I still feel sad for me. I'm going to try to make things work with my husband and he doesn't know anything about this. I'm going to try to make my needs better known to him, but I still feel sad for myself. I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling... uh, I like the word compassion more than feeling sad or sorry for ourselves because I I think the connotation of those other words is that, you know, uh, that we're doing it selfishly. But self-compassion to me is, is is a healthy act. But it can easily drift into um, self-pity, which to me is a misguided attempt at self-compassion and instead kind of goes into the the realm of, I don't know, playing the victim and staying stuck because we don't want to take responsibility for whatever we do have control over in our situation. And uh, I see it a lot in people that come into my support group, my addiction support groups. Um, They're just just so self-obsessed and their life is usually, you know, burning to the ground. And they don't even know that they're self-obsessed and filled with fear. I was the same way when I rolled in there. And it it was yeah i was filled with self pity but in and, and i didn't think i was the problem i didn't i did, couldn't see that i was the common denominator in all of my problems and um but that's a good question man because it it's i don't think any feelings are right or wrong or healthy or unhealthy i think there's just healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing them and managing them and I would say if you're feeling sadness for yourself, especially your younger self, head in that direction. Find out what are some ways I could process this. Is there a book I could read? Is there someone I could reach out to? Could I go to therapy? Could I go to a support group? Can I just sit in, in, sit in that feeling and maybe some tears will come up and I'll process some of it. Take some of the weight away. This is from the memorable vacation arguments filled out by um, Abby. And she writes, My family of four, mom, dad, other brother by two years, and me, we all went to Cape San Blas, Florida, at this beautiful cottage. My Oma and Opa, I'm not sure, I don't know if I've ever heard that. I've heard of Oprah, but I've never heard of Opa drove separately and came a day later. At the beginning, my parents came up with the brilliant idea to write 150 on both our forearms to represent $150. If my brother and I didn't argue the whole vacation, we would each get that 150 at the end. I believe we were 13 and 15. After two or three days in, something happened where my brother upset me and I reacted badly, which ended up in a fight and the 150 is getting washed off our arms. Still was a wonderful, memorable vacation. Abby, I'm going to assume that your family is not Jewish. I don't know if that if that if that is a terrible joke on my part, but that was the first thing that popped into my head and uh, I hope that wasn't in terrible taste, but it was the, it was the first thought that popped in my head. And it's my podcast, so I share it. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Kadabi. 
And she writes, I'd love to hear you talk more about child-on-child incest. I'm a survivor of this and currently dealing with it, finally, with myself and family. My older male cousin, by just over a month, sexually abused me when I was 13 and he had just turned 14, the summer right before I went to high school. I have a lot of shame, sadness, and rage about what happened. For years, I blamed myself because I didn't do anything to really stop him. But I now know about fight, flight, or freeze, and I definitely froze in shock when it happened. He took me to different rooms in his home and continued to molest me. It was clothes on, but was still very traumatizing. He tried at the end, asking me to take my pants off. That's when I snapped back to reality and said no. And thankfully, that's when our grandpa came in the house after doing yard work. I have no memory of moving rooms, just what happened in them. And I just want to interject... Some people will say, especially people who don't understand sexual trauma, will go, well, you know, you escaped harm because your clothes didn't come off. And that is bullshit. You're having your boundary violated, being objectified. That, that is the issue and the feelings that are left in the wake of it. That is the issue. Um, continuing. According to my aunt, he is struggling to remember what specifically happened, uh, but he's acknowledged what happened. In his message to me, after I finally messaged him about how I felt, he was just defending himself, saying he was just a kid and didn't know what he was doing. I call bullshit. This is all still very raw for me, and my brain just now this year has opened up about it. After he abused me, my brain told me it was fine, so I was friends with him, even bringing him around my friends. I have shame about this too, but I was just wondering if you have anything to say about this or if there's anyone you know that has a similar situation with a cousin. Uh, Thank you for all that you do. The repressed memories with Aaron Woodall episode helped me help my parents understand a bit more. Thank you for, for sharing that, and it's such an important topic, and there's so much... There's so much gray area in the when the sexual trauma is perpetrated between um, adolescents or children, and I think the thing that is important to keep in mind is not the prosecutability of the child who is the quote unquote perpetrator, but processing the feelings that we feel around that. Um, no matter what that in- person's intent was and no matter what that person's um, reaction is if they're confronted about it. Because we can't control how they're going to react about that. But what we can control is how we move forward in the future. Do we cut contact with him? Do we cut contact with people that make excuses for somebody who's a violator? But, you know, he was a child. And that doesn't excuse what he did. But... It, it it certainly complicates things. And saying that somebody was a child and isn't fully responsible for their actions is does not minimize what happened to you. Somebody can be not responsible for their actions and cause tremendous trauma. And I think that the, the fallacy is that the two can't exist at the same time. And, uh, but that's a really interesting subject. The, you know, to what degree of responsibility is, is, does a child have? I was molested by a neighbor uh, who was four years older than me. And I didn't call it that until 
fuck, probably 2012. When I went, holy shit, that was molestation, you know? To me, it was just something that I didn't want to do and I backed out of. But, you know, there was some touching and and I didn't like it and I felt awkward around him. And I finally stopped returning his phone calls like when I was 28. I finally went, I don't like being around this guy. I used to get him tickets to my stand-up show. And then just one day I was like, what the fuck am I doing? This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. Yeah, let's lighten things up with the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself so fucking dumb. So you know this is brimming with self-confidence. He identifies as gay. He's 18, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Speaking of cousins, my much older cousin would ask me to masturbate with him when I was younger, 11 to 13, and we'd watch porn. There was a few instances he would grab my genitals and even tried to put his mouth on them. Yes. Yes, that is abuse. That is abuse. Um, and I'm sorry you had to experience that. He's been emotionally abused. I grew up with an alcoholic addicted father. For example, I remember him beating my mom when my a younger sibling was just a few days old. I was probably 12, and I jumped on his back in an effort to get him off of her, and he threw me into a wall. My mom never did anything and is with him till this day. Although he is better, I think he should have been held accountable for his many, many faults. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I will always love my mother and father, and I'm very close with them now, but when I think about the past and all the terrible things that happened, I just have the worst feeling in my stomach. Darkest Thoughts I constantly think about driving my car off a cliff. Now, are you thinking hybrid, full electric, sedan, maybe a convertible? You you do a little Thelma and Louise at the end. How's that for an old reference? Um... Or just throwing myself down the stairs, having cancer but not dying, question mark, if that makes sense. Dude, that totally makes sense. There are a lot of people who find themselves fantasizing about having cancer. And and I think it's the desire to have our pain visible to other people, to have a reason to be taken care of or to be paid attention to. And I think that's a, a, a healthy human trait when we're in pain and we feel trapped in our life. And I'm sorry that you're feeling that way. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm I'm making fun of you. I'm just, uh, you know, sometimes I get a little uncomfortable and I make jokes. Or I, it's just the joke pops into my head and I can't not say it. Darkest Secrets. I once gave a 70-year-old a blowjob for $100 in a Tim Hortons bathroom. Go Leafs. See? why Now, why would I say that? Why would I say something insensitive like that? Well, because Tim Horton played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah. You understand, you Canadians. Um, I like to hide the fact that my family struggles financially and that my siblings go to a lower-class school. Buddy, you sound like a really, really beautiful, sensitive kid. You really do. And I'm sorry that you 
grew up in this shit show, and you sounds like you're probably still living at home. Um, but you sound like a seeker, and you sound like you have a beautiful life ahead of you if you just keep seeking healthier routes and ways to cope and facing the stuff that's causing you pain. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being choked, tied up with a much older man. But I don't know if I'd ever follow through with it. I've never really shared this with anyone. Writing it makes me feel dot, 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 horny. Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I get good grades in school and work really hard at my job. My parents parents seem to take a lot of credit for it and brag. I want to tell them that I would be this way without them, and I learned it by doing the complete opposite of what they do. That is so fantastic. That should be a Father's and Mother's Day card. <laughs> how, fucking, how long would their faces be when they open that one up in, in front of relatives? What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to just be content. I want to be happy and just not worry about everything. I wish I didn't care so much about what other people think of me. I've shared these things with my best friend, and she doesn't seem to get me. Writing these things down, I kind of feel like shit. I'm kind of shaky and dizzy. And brave. You're fucking brave for going going to the well and digging digging that uncomfortable stuff up, those uncomfortable memories, those uncomfortable feelings. And that, that to me is, is a man. Psycho Billy Stomp shares some of his fears. I fear that I may accidentally kill myself, such as cutting too deep or getting too fucked up and everyone's going to think I'm a coward and selfish for leaving my wife when all I was trying to do was numb the pain or feel something. Wow, that is heavy. I've never, after somebody kills themselves, I've never thought that coward or that that selfish person. I just think they they were in a building that was on fire and they just couldn't take it anymore or thought they couldn't take it anymore. Maybe some of them couldn't. I'd like to think that some of them just didn't have the tools at their disposal to help them cope with it, but I don't know. I've never been in another person's skin. Other than the skin that I dig up at the graveyard and parade around in on Valentine's Day. This is from the Fears survey and filled out by a woman who calls herself Joey C. is not the place to be. And she writes, I fear that the prison sentence I'm about to serve will change me for the worse. I'm a good person. I'd hate to change that to who I was. Wow. Thank you for that. I was just chuckling. Any comments to make the podcast better? Go fuck yourself. Smiley face. I haven't said that in a while. The old go fuck yourself on the podcast. Man, I, I, I sending you some love. Sending you some love. I can't imagine how stressful, stressful that's got to be. I went through a phase recently where I was just obsessed with the Mexican mafia and reading books about them and the shit that they do in prison. I mean, I thought I knew a lot about prison from, you know, friends that have been in it and stuff I've read and 
occasionally going there to, to speak to people about, about recovery, but, oh man, they have a, they have a nickname for stabbing someone in prison, the Mexican mafia. It's called hard candy. And the reason they call it hard candy is they, they hide the shiv or the knife that they stab the person with. They, they do what they call, they keister it. They put it up their asshole until they're out on the yard or wherever it is that they can get the person alone that they're going to stab. And then they pull it out of their butt and it's often brown. And that's why they call it giving somebody hard candy. I read that and I was like, i speechless like I am right now. This is from the love survey. Yes, please, for the love of God, let's lighten this fucking shit show up. Anonymous writes, I love that I can say anything to my dog and she never thinks I'm insane. She just listens. <laughs> I fucking love that one. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I wonder what Gracie would say if she if she had the power to just say one thing to me, what she would say. It would probably be, yes, I know, I'm a fucking princess. Let's move on. That's more than one thing. Uh, from the fears survey, Maddie writes, I fear failure more because I'm scared of people's response rather than failing. That one really made me think because I had always just kind of assumed that failure was just about the failure, about not getting what we want. But now that I think of it, yeah, there there's almost always is that trying to look good part of it. This is an email I got from Jennifer from Pinch Me, and she writes, Hi, Helen. September Sample Tuesday is next week, and we have a bunch of great samples in our lineup. The more we know about you, the more likely you are to see samples in your account on Sample Tuesday. Um... Make sure your About Me profile is completely filled out and up to date. We especially want to know what is your hair color. Well, Jennifer, that's none of your business. What stores do you shop at? I said this before on the podcast, the 97 cent store. I used to shop at the 99 cent store. In the 10 years I've been shopping at the 97 cent store, I have saved over $3. Do you have a dog? I do, and her name is Gracie. What is her breed, size, and preferred type of dog food? Uh, she is a medium-sized dog. She wears a size 3 dress, and she is part princess, part angel. Does anyone in your, f in your family suffer from ailments like eczema? I actually do get eczema. I have uh, the, the, the kind of rheumatoid arthritis that, that comes with eczema. Uh and I do get it uh, from time to time. And if I haven't heard from it in a while, it sends me a Christmas card. Do you or anyone in your household wear contact lenses? Yes, Gracie does. Um, and she wears goggles because she is into flying old planes. And what are you passionate about? I'm passionate about old planes and my dog flying them. I hope that answers your questions, Jennifer. You nosy lady. This is from the Fears Survey, and Amy asks, or says, I'm afraid I'll never get sober, that I'll slowly drink myself to death, embarrassing myself in front of people because I'm hammered, then drinking more when I remember how I embarrassed myself. 
I think I'll become homeless and addicted to something much worse than alcohol if I don't choose sobriety. Probably have a seizure, ending up with brain damage or losing my life. I'm afraid of myself and what damage I'm causing. You know, Amy, I've read so many of these fears surveys, and this is one of the few ones where your fears are based in reality. And for those of us that are alcoholics and addicts, we should be afraid of our life without support, of giving in to our desire to to run rather than to process things or have difficult conversations. I, I hope you get sober. I hope you get to that point where the pain and the quote-unquote humiliation of asking for help, and it's really not humiliation, it's an act of bravery, is less scary to you than the thought of not getting loaded. I think I said that right. And if I didn't, all of you, go fuck yourselves. I think there's a group on for you guys to collectively go fuck yourself. Is that even a thing anymore, Groupon? Hi, I'm Paul. This is 1997. How are you? Excuse me while I grow that Fu Manchu. And the 2000s are coming up and I want to make sure I look like everybody else. Or is that a Van Dyke? I forget what the, the facial thing is. The mustache with the semi-beard just on the chin. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Grilled Cheese. And uh, she writes, I have a difficult relationship with my mother. Some backstory first to help understand the fears. As a child, from the outside, it appeared to be thriving. I was a straight-A student who helped care for my younger sister, and I was given a lot of freedom to do what I wanted. In reality, I was crippled with perfectionism, which, as a child, I thought was help keep, helping keep my mother's sanity and happiness together. I was being parentified by my mother and the quote freedom was a form of neglect where I was allowed to stay away from home for days on end from the age of 12-ish. This led to grooming and sexual abuse by another family member, much of which I rightly or wrongly blame on not having a safe and loving home to grow up in. I blame my mother. I now live far away from my mother. I have a daughter of my own and work so, so hard to break the cycle of parenting. Having my daughter triggered me to mostly stop faking my relationship with my mother as if I didn't have the energy to do that and care properly for my daughter. Now, a few years on, my mother and I rarely talk. We talk through messages, but I never have a real conversation with her. She's not a bad person, and she, she suffered during her childhood but I find it impossible to give, forgive her failings during my childhood and her lack of support during the subsequent police reports and court case. My therapist recommended grieving for the mother I never had. I fear that I will, however, forever live in this purgatory of not being able to grieve, as my therapist recommended, as I still have a very much alive mother who is gripping on for dear life to any scraps of our relationship but I will not be able to break through this wall of inauthenticity with her and she will never be the mother I need. I fear I'm making awful choices when it comes to our relationship and I'm being incredibly selfish. I fear when she dies, I will forever regret not trying harder to find a closeness with her. 
I fear I will forever live in guilt that I made her life so much worse than I could have done. I fear the thought of doing a speech at her funeral and the shame of knowing I didn't try hard enough as a daughter. And I fear the guilt when I see her next and looking in her eyes knowing I've already tried to grieve for her. That is really, really powerful. And you described exactly the thoughts and feelings that I have had in navigating the relationship that I used to have with my mother. I I no longer have a relationship with her. But those are the thoughts that dominated my brain when I was in the process of cutting contact with her and probably for five years after it. It sounds like your, your instinct is to pull away from her and keep her at arm's length. And from what you described, that sounds like a pretty healthy thing if your mom is still not a safe person to be around, emotionally safe. And I like what your therapist said, grieving for the mother you never had. That sadness has got to go somewhere. It might as well come out. And I've gone through that, grieving. You know, when when I finally realized in the spring of 2012 that what I had experienced from my mom was incest and that basically my entire life, I was in many ways an object to her, an extension in her mind, probably, of herself, not an autonomous person, with his own thoughts and feelings and preferences, but rather a thing that she used to squeeze the feelings she wanted to feel from. When I realized that, it felt like somebody close to me had died, and it was. It was the image of her that I had created to survive. And it was painful as fuck, but I'm glad I went through it. It was scary and confusing and I felt like if I didn't know the truth for four decades about that what else don't I know about and I felt like an astronaut outside the capsule whose lifeline had been clipped I felt untethered that's the best word I could find to describe it I I felt like I didn't know up from down left from right and I'm so embarrassing I wanted a mommy I just wanted somebody to hold me and tell me everything is going to be all right. But you're brave. You're brave for for even investigating those feelings. This is from the love survey filled out by the homebody. And they write, and I love when you find a small piece of chocolate right before you take your first sip of coffee and you eat the chocolate with your coffee. That is a good one. That is a nice one. That's nice. Oh, that's nice. And then finally, I'm going to read some loves. This is from Depresso Martini. And they write, I love the feeling after a cry when you've navigated through all the emotion you've been suppressing. When you're walking down the street and strangers are staring at me, probably thinking I'm hot. Outgoing people who make others feel comfortable. When someone brings when someone brings you a drink without asking if you want one. That is sweet. I never thought about that. 
or somebody br- brings you a plate of food. Uh, people who are touchy, but not in a sexual way, just like a warm, friendly way. When my partner gets home and we cuddle and just euphorically tell each other how much we missed each other through the day. When my partner pushes my bangs out of the way to kiss my forehead. Oh, that's sweet. What a sweet image. Sneaking into places that are abandoned or I shouldn't be at and feeling like I'm going to get caught. Having sex loudly or in public places. Someone expressing gratitude towards you when you thought they didn't even notice what you did for them and standing up to someone. Those are great. God, what a powerful feeling that is when you stand up to to someone. That's so scary, though. That's so fucking scary. I've always been so envious of people that don't seem to give a shit what other people think. It just seems like, it seems like they're on a different planet. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you got something out of the the interview and all the surveys and I hope if you're struggling and you're feeling alone that you that you know you're not alone that's just the mean part of your brain fucking yakking chewing its gum moving its lips just puffing puffing out its bullshit because you're not alone and thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.